BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Mic check, check one, check two. Are we here? All right, we're here right now. Ish. So as American Indian people, it's always protocol to acknowledge whose land you're on. And today, no matter where you go in the city and county of San Francisco, you're on Ramatushaloni land. Hello, what's up, world? It's Pendarvis Harshaw, host of Right Nowish. And I'm Marisol Medina Cadena, the Right Nowish producer. And we're coming to you from KQED Studios on unceded Ramatush Ohlone land, originally known as Yelamu. Yeah, and that voice you heard earlier is that of Shreya Souza. Hello, everyone. My name is Shreya Souza, Tata Tals Pueblo Ute in Kiowa, and I'm the executive director and co-founder of the American Indian Cultural District. Two years ago, San Francisco became the home of the first American Indian cultural district of its kind in California. What makes it so special is that it is a hub honoring the multiplicity of urban native groups that reside in the Bay, in addition to the Ramatush Ohlone. It's located in the Mission District. What people don't know is that at one point, the Mission District was called the Red Ghetto. At one point, it was a thriving, bustling area of American Indian businesses, organizations, and community members. And today, when we look at the data that comes from our map, we still see many of our members actually reside in the cultural district, and that it is a continuing history. It is a living history. We've talked about the urban relocation program on Right Nowish before, but for those unfamiliar, It was a federal policy passed in 1952 that tried to assimilate American Indians living on the Res or Pueblos by incentivizing them to move to urban cities like LA, Detroit, Chicago, Oakland, and San Francisco. And with all these native folks arriving in the Bay during a time of redlining, racial discrimination, and low wage jobs for people of color, American Indians felt enough was enough and a movement started to grow. In 1969, a group of activists organized a historic takeover of one of the city's abandoned islands that will be known as the Alcatraz Occupation. Over a hundred American Indians occupied the defunct prison and surrounding island to establish a sovereign native space. It was an effort to push the federal government to honor an 1868 treaty with the Sioux Nation, the promise to return out-of-use land to native groups. Here's Richard Oakes, one of the lead organizers, speaking to news cameras. We wish to be fair and honorable in our dealings with the Caucasian inhabitants of this land and hereby offer the following treaty. We will purchase said Alcatraz Island for $24 in glass beads and red cloth, a precedent set by the white man's purchase of a similar island about 300 years ago. But even before the Alcatraz occupation, American Indians were organizing in San Francisco. The Mission District was a hub for political organizing, cultural activity, and social services by and for Native folks. 
which is where today's cultural district comes in, because it's about preserving that activist and cultural history that began in the 50s, continuing through today, and is foundational to this city's DNA. To dig deeper into the urban native history in the Bay, Marisol is going to take us to a few of the sites that are culturally significant within the district. But first, let's situate you on the map. It's more than just the area surrounding Mission Dolores Church, right? Right. Get yourself to Dolores Park, walk down 16th to Mission Street, and cool fact, the park was known as Chichui by the Romatish Ohlone pre-Spanish colonization. It was a central gathering spot back then. It's still a central gathering spot, looks totally different now. Yeah. And to be honest, it's been a long time coming for the city of San Francisco to recognize Native contributions at this scale. So let's buckle up. We got learning to do. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Let's begin our tour near 16th and Mission Street, just a block up from the BART station. We're in front of a gray-painted stucco building. It's a pretty plain-looking bar right next to a popular Indian and Pakistani restaurant. Uh, hi, my name's Mary Travis Allen. I am Mayagna, Chortega, and Seneca. I am the advisory board president for the American Indian Cultural District. Right now, we're standing in front of 3079 16th Street, which currently is a bar, bomb bar, but it's historical merit to us in our community is that it was the former location of Warren's Slaughterhouse Bar. And that was a meeting location for us back in the uh, 60s and 70s and helped foundationally uh, art bringing our community together with people coming from all over the states and different reservations they were able to socialize but more importantly discuss the similarities of the struggles that they were having because what people were experiencing here was a failure of yet another promise by the government to move our communities into the city and assimilate into America. They struggled for employment and they found that there really wasn't the resource or the realization of this American dream that had been promised to them. 
right down the street was the American Indian Center. So, you know, a lot of the resources and conversations that existed there kind of came over to this area. Those conversations, in addition to identifying, you know, social needs, employment opportunities, there was a hiring hall right down the street at the Redstone Building. So there was union organization that was going on there. You know, a lot of that cascaded over into this location. Richard Oakes, you know, this was one of his first employments here. This area at the time that you're talking about was referred to as the Red Ghetto. Um, who called it that and why was it called that? In this area, you know, was single occupancy housing, low income housing, um, the lack of other resources. It was redlined. It was the least desirable place where people would want to live and also the loans weren't being given. And so with our concentration of our people in our community here, we came to be known as the Red Power Movement here. And so the term Red Ghetto, you know, was applied to this area because it was a ghetto. It was underserved economically, but it was also the hub and existence of our community. I remember kind of because I was a kid at the time, there were dances, you know, there were people that were meeting and getting together because this urban environment took away a lot of our cultural norms, you know, from the reservations, from our cultures, and got blended together here. The other thing it presented, and I have to speak to it, is is the police. The police amped up its patrollers around here. Our people were getting arrested. You know, a report that came out in the, the 70s, late 70s, that said that our people were being targeted by stereotyping and profiling, and they were being arrested four times higher than any other ethnic group in this city, you know? So in our struggles to exist here in the city, we had locations, you know, like Warren, where we could go and gather and talk about these things, you know? Instead of it making us weaker, it made us stronger because that collective thinking, that thought, that process, and that advocacy that happened here. A few blocks from the bar, I met up with Debbie Santiago and her mother, Alberta Snyder, at one of the former sites of the American Indian Cultural Centers. They stood shoulder to shoulder, each with walking canes. I'm Alberta Snyder, Washoe, enrolled Washoe member of the California, Nevada tribe from uh, Carson, actually the Carson Valley area. And um, I was born and raised here in San Francisco. Hi, I'm Debbie Santiago, and I'm an uh, enrolled member of the Washoe Tribe of Nevada, California, and I'm on my mother's side, and I'm also Osage on my father from Oklahoma. 
And can one of you tell us where we're standing today? This is the old Indian Center um, that opened in, in a, the early 1970s. So all my memories are, are from the center here. From We had a women's basketball team, which was called Eagle Shawl, and we would have tournaments playing in, in different areas from California all the way to Nevada. And it was pretty awesome to be around my own people when we won. Here at the bottom, we had social services, job training, and then upstairs we had a little uh, event area with a stage, dance class, drum class, bead making classes, shawl classes. My mother was a big part of that. Today, it's a nondescript office building. A bright mural showing teepees belonging to Plains Indians is no longer. It's now a canvas for graph writers. Debbie's mom, Alberta, eventually became a teacher at the center. It was a hub of so much cultural and education activity. They reminisced about the days when Valencia Street was transformed into powwow grounds, which really struck me, because nowadays, if you want to go to a public powwow, you've got to make the trek to an elite college campus, like UC Berkeley, Stanford, or Santa Clara. So many people from all over big time um, dancers would come down all over the place and booth vendors and but this day when we had that street fair closure that was the biggest I've ever seen here in um, Valencia Street in front of the center. The American Indian Center is no longer at this building and the one that came after closed due to lack of funding. So today they're a virtual organization. I asked Debbie and Alberta about this. You don't have a physical space? No. We need a center, and we need it now. The reason we want a physical space is because it gives us a chance to gather to, uh, for families to see each other because uh, many of us are spread out within uh, the San Francisco community. And it also gives us, um, the elders, a chance to get out and be with family. You know, we, we've discovered that there are many elders that are alone, they're in their their rooms and you know they don't get a chance to be around people and some of them don't eat but maybe once a day so we could have them there for lunch and dinner. Cultural centers aren't just active when folks are making art or there for an event. They can also be gathering places for people to simply be in community with each other which is vital in a city that can render living American Indians as invisible. Our people here is after a long period of time has been overlooked and unseen. People get, come up to me and say, oh, you don't exist. I didn't know there was any American Indian people still living here in the Bay Area. And, I, and so we have to laugh and tell them, well, I'm American Indian, number one. And I said, and I've lived here in the Bay Area all my life. And I said, and there's a big community of American Indian people from different tribes that were that was relocated into the Bay Area. So it, it to me it's always funny that they're they're thinking, you know, that we're gone and with the cowboys or whatever. You know? At the end of our conversation, we parted ways. Then I headed over to a building on Julian Way and 15th Street. For the last 50 years, it's been the Friendship House the oldest social service organization in the United States run by and for American Indians. I'm here to meet another community leader. Karen Wakazu, 
My role at Friendship House is data and contract specialist, and I am Lakota. I am from Standing Rock and Rosebud. Karen is the daughter of one of Friendship House's founder, Helen Wakazu. My mom came out around early 60s. Um, she was taken from her family by the U.S. government to go to a boarding school. But while she was here, she saw that there was so much alcoholism and there was no place for uh, Native Americans to go for that. That is when she started this program. And the alcoholism that your mom was seeing didn't happen out of nowhere, right? Yes, completely. So Natives face all the same issues as when my mom first came here. Housing, jobs, health, mental health care, suicide prevention, substance abuse treatment. Um, my mom would always say it's a shame that Natives are homeless on their own land. The unique thing about Friendship House is that it provides these service in a very cultural specific way, which is important to our Native people. There can be a deep seated level of distrust in government services because of that. Being separated from your family can cause um, hurt and pain and that can... Karen tells me there's a plan to rename the street where Friendship House is located, from Julian Avenue to Wakazoo Way, in honor of her mother who passed away in 2021. You know, I was thinking about her the other day, how her office would, was right there and she would come down and it was like she was a celebrity, you know. People wanted to hug her and be around her she just made you feel special. But her vision to continue going into the future was the village. The street naming will accompany a new six-story building named The Village. It'll offer even more health services, temporary supportive housing, job training, and a rooftop farm for cultivating plant and food medicine. When your mom was running this space, uh, did she have to pressure city government to recognize the work people were doing here and to like fund it or? There were times that she just got her coat on and went down to city hall and knocked on the door until somebody let her in. She wasn't scared of going and getting what she needed done. Is there a similar kind of battle today to get the city to fund the, the resources you all provide? I, we always kind of have to show that we're still here. You know, we always kind of have to show that, you know, we're not um, gone. We are the only group that has to prove our blood quantum. You know who else has to do that? Horses and dogs. Yeah. Crazy, huh? When Julian Avenue gets renamed after your mother, more people will know her name. That is the one thing, you know, I want to get the village built and we're going to have a statue of her. And I just look forward to that, that day. She never quit. She worked from 
a secretary all the way up to a CEO. Um, you know, it was difficult, but she she made it, and she she didn't um, quit, and that's something I'm trying to um, follow in her footsteps with. Everywhere you walk in San Francisco, you're on native land. But I think in the modern terms and the legislative terms of having a cultural district is really visibility. Last but not least, our tour ends with Sherea Sousa, who we met at the start of this episode. She's executive director and co-founder of the American Indian Cultural District. I feel like it's always been a dream the more I hear from our elders of something that they wanted here. You know, when we think about the occupation of Alcatraz was a call for a space. And so we didn't just get a space. You know, we got an entire legislated space on a map. San Francisco, to me, I've only been here three years. I'm from Sacramento. I always thought of San Francisco as the home of the Alcatraz occupation. Oh my gosh, there must be like, that's where the American Indian Film Festival happens. They're so liberal, they must really care about American Indians. And when I got here, it was really disappointing to learn that we don't have any American Indians on the Board of Supervisors. We don't have any American Indians in the Human Rights Commissions. We don't have any American Indians in really high positions within our city government. One of the biggest things that I've noticed coming into San Francisco, aside from the fact that we don't have tribal liaisons like we do in the governor's office or at state institutions, is that the city is, is predicated on equity and racial equity, and that's our big push in the city. Yet we have the lowest graduation rates, the highest suicide rates, the lowest employment rates, the second lowest income, the lowest home ownership rates. Our, our funding for our youth is completely disproportionate. And it's not about competing with each other for resources. It's really just understanding how we've constantly turned a blind eye to American Indians. Just recently, we were able to work with the mayor's office to really edit the stats that were not 0.3% of the population or 1.1% of the population. And after, again, the 2020 redistricting stats, we actually came out as 2.1% of the population with over 17,965 American Indians that identified as American Indian plus another race and 6,000 475 that identified as single race American Indians. So we are here, we've been here. The American Indian Cultural District has their office here in Fort Mason, not the Mission District, because this area is also significant to urban native folks. In case you didn't know, the annual Two-Spirit powwow is held here. It's put on by Bay Area American Indian Two-Spirits, and the Alcatraz occupation happened just a stone's throw away from here. Every day that I see Alcatraz outside, it inspires me because the people that came here to Alcatraz came to bring visibility to relocation, termination, the federal government policies in the 1950s, which meant to terminate American Indians and urbanize them and move them into uh, cities in order to assimilate them. But what it ended up doing is it ended up making us stronger. Instead, we built intertribal communities here. And what Alcatraz did is it was really a catalyst. 
It was sort of the first cultural district before cultural districts were born because folks basically looked at the different treaty rights and they said, based off of the fact that this is, you know, federal land and it is unoccupied, you know, given the, the, the rules that go along with the federal government, this could potentially be Indian land. And so they occupied it. So for me, it's, it's a reminder of the work that was done before me. It's the reminder that that work needs to keep continuing. And it's a reminder that Alcatraz is a living movement. And it's still an inspiration to many people today and that those people who occupied are still here. That is why I think the district is so symbolic is because you can't deny that we're here anymore. You can't say that we don't exist. Thank you to the American Indian Cultural District team who worked with me to make this story happen. That's Paloma Flores and Tal Cutone. Also, special thanks to Janine Antoine for connecting us. For more information on the Cultural District, look them up at AmericanIndianCulturalDistrict.org. And if you want to know more about Oakland during urban relocation, you can go listen to our episode with comedian Jackie Kali Ah. Thanks. The producer and host of this episode is Marisol Medina Cadena. This episode was edited by Jessica Plachik, Kiana Mogadam, and Jen Chin. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Corey Antonio Rose is our production intern. Our engagement team is made up of Justin Ebrahimi and Rhea Garawal. Kiana Mogadam is the senior producer of podcasts. KQED execs are David Marcus, Holly Kernan, and Jen Chin. I'm Pendarvis Harshaw, and I will be back in the host seat next week. In the meantime, Go to the mission and visit the cultural district for yourself. Peace. Right Nowish is a KQED production. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as like the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio is always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.